Hello, everyone. We're going to have the most interesting discussion today. We're talking to Wendy Hapgood, the co-founder and COO of Wild Tomorrow Fund. Uh, they're doing some amazing work to protect uh, wildlife habitats in Africa and elsewhere. You don't want to miss this episode. Stick around. Welcome to the Your Mark on the World show with your champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. This episode is made possible via the support of our sponsors, including Johnson & Johnson's Caring Crowd. Wendy, welcome to the show. Hi, Devin. Thanks for having me. Well, we're thrilled to have you, and thank you so much for making time for us. It's great to be able to get the story of what you're doing. Uh, you know, you told me something in advance that really intrigues me, and I want to start there. You said it was the... Uh, uh, the tsunami and the uh, related, you know, nuclear problems and all that, that, that when you were working on Wall Street, that mm -hmm. somehow motivated your shift in career. And tell me about how that affected you. Sure. I was living in Tokyo at the time and working uh, for Wall Street Bank uh, when the earthquake hit. And I was on the trading floor, literally, <laughs> when um, this, this huge earthquake hit actually further north of Tokyo. But it had a devastating impact, firstly, with a tsunami wave. But for me personally, what was even more devastating was the nuclear crisis. And it was quite scary to be in a, in a place where you just didn't know what the danger was. And it really made me think about our impact on the planet as individuals, as consumers, because I thought about myself as someone, you know, without thought consuming electricity and that electricity was 50% nuclear and that without even a choice in some ways, I was participating in this industry that then poisoned the earth. And a lot of people commented at the time of the disaster, well, you know, it wasn't that bad, nobody died. And, and I really felt because I was there on the ground and I experienced it personally that they were missing a huge part of the environmental destruction and, and the poisoning of our earth. But it also made me think about consumption and how we live our lives every day without thinking about the in impact that we have as individuals on the planet. So I knew from that point that I, I really wanted to do something uh, to help. And, you know, I used to joke with friends that I felt like the only banker on Wall Street who wanted to quit and join Greenpeace. <laughs> so it took me a while. It took me another two years after that disaster to have the courage to leave, you know, they call Wall Street, uh, the golden handcuffs, you know, you have a, a great income and a, and a good career and, you, and, and it's hard to leave. But I did really feel that um, we're living in an age where climate change and biodiversity loss is, is a, an, a huge crisis. And I definitely felt that I needed to, to personally help. <laughs> and the only way I could help would be to leave and to educate myself on um, sustainability, the issues facing our planet, climate change. So I, I left Wall Street. I went to school. I did my master's at Columbia University's Earth Institute in sustainability and at the same time founded uh, Wild Tomorrow Fund, which is a wildlife conservation organization. So focused on tackling that issue of biodiversity loss. It's uh, it, you know, a powerful story about how you've had this uh, dramatic change in what you're doing and uh, it, it's really inspiring. 
Tell us a little bit about Wild Tomorrow Fund and some of your early wins. Sure. We started in 2015, um, really driven after visiting South Africa and especially the region that we focused on is, is Zululand, KwaZulu-Natal. And when you visit a government reserve there and, and hear some of the stories from behind the scenes, those rangers that they're dedicating their lives every day on essentially subsistence salaries. You know, they're living very poor. They don't have TVs or cars or any of the luxuries that we have. And yet they are, you know, dedicating their lives to protecting wildlife, which I think is for the benefit of all of us who want a future where there are elephants and rhinos and lions that, that are still in the wild. So we saw their need and this need that wasn't being addressed um, at a very basic level. So there's a lot of sexy things you could do to help with anti-poaching, like buying drones, but um, which, you know, I'm sure that's helpful, but when a reserve doesn't have boots for rangers, you know, there's in some ways a really easy way to help. So we started, in 2015, literally raising money, um, very direct with our donors to say, do you, how do you want us to um, use your donation? Would you like to buy a pair of boots? And that person knowing that when they donate, you know, they're going to see down the line a pair of boots being delivered to a ranger. So that's where we started on a sort of a smaller scale. And then it grew from there. Um, you know, I think poaching is an absolutely urgent crisis when it comes to specifically rhinos in South Africa, where we work, and elephants across the continent of Africa. I'm sure people have heard the stats, but I, I, it's worth repeating because I think it's very shocking that for elephants um, in the this is a recent crisis that's happening today. In the last seven years, 2007 to 2014 was the last census. You know, 30% of elephants were lost in Africa to poaching. That's 144,000 elephants killed in like the last seven years, sort of on our watch. This is not a crisis from the past, it's a crisis of today. And then South Africa is home to 80% of the world's rhinos. Um, and they've lost over 7,000 rhinos in the last 10 years. And like, if you put that in perspective, there's only around 20,000 white rhinos and 5,000 black rhinos left. So if you do the maths on that, if those approaching rates continued, we would not have rhinos in the wild. And we just saw the loss of Sudan and last Northern, the last male Northern white rhino in Kenya. So we don't, I'm really passionate. I don't want that to see that happen with rhinos. So, uh, poaching is an urgent crisis, but the other crisis I think is not as often spoken about that we're also working to tackle, which kind of came second because it was sort of very big to, to start with, is habitat loss. So I think it's, we can save animals today, but if they don't have space in which to live and to, to expand and to be safe, then, you know, we, we have a really long-term issue and, and that land is being lost to farming, um, development, deforestation. So what happened was we had a very urgent land issue where it, it sort of came across our, you know, our guys on, on the ground in South Africa. There was a piece of land that was about to be literally turned into a pineapple farm. Now this piece of land is 1,235 acres. It was already home to hippo, zebra, <laughs> you know, incredible biodiversity. It's in a biodiversity hotspot. So we felt very um, passionate and concerned and, and that we really had to do something. So thanks to, you know, I think America is a very generous nation. We went out and spoke to people here in the city, um, you know, to get donors to participate in, in really a, um, 
land acquisition project, like a grassroots land acquisition project, a lot of uh, reserves or nature reserves in America that are privately sort of saved. It's one very rich individual who does it. You know, this is, we've had people donate $20 to, you know, $100,000 to try to help save land as habitat in South Africa. So we're extremely proud of that. And, and I think um, being able to stand on that ground and see the biodiversity returning or show our donors a video of giraffe jumping out uh, to their new habitat is, is so rewarding. And I think for people to see the impact that they're having is so important so they can continue to, to help with the cause. As we think about uh, the, the, the land, the, the, this land question, uh, I, I think a little bit about the, the nature of the problem. We, we think a lot about uh, the urbanization of the planet, which seems to, by its nature, be protective of land, but it, it must be agriculture and rec recreation that must be encroaching on, on natural habitats. What are you actually seeing? I, Help us understand the nature of the problem. Uh, I think a lot of people expect when they go and visit Africa on a, you know, a safari that it will all look a bit like you see in, you know, nature documentaries. And the reality is, you know, actually a lot of photographers kind of frame out the highway or the, the roads that there is a lot of development. The Africa, you know, the, the population is growing around the world and in Africa too. So humans, we, <laughs> we are really multiplying and, and expanding space. So the region that we're in, it's um, agricultural development and like communities. So people growing local population, pushing up against the edges of, of wild habitat. Um, and I'm a huge fan of Dr. E.O. Wilson, who's a famous American biologist who coined the term biodiversity. And he's calling for half Earth. And, and some people think that that's quite extreme, but a number of countries or states have achieved it. That for us as, as a planetary community or, you know, for us as, as humans on this planet to say if we care and we want to save 80% of species on this planet, the mass that the scientists do call for 50% of land to be saved. And um, it sounds a lot, but it's definitely achievable. So I think even if we don't quite get there, you know, we're so far away from it. So yeah. it's, it's an issue around the world. And um, one of the, the key um, keys to solving this issue is the strategic acquisition of land and, and buying land that can connect existing wild patches together so and that's what you did here right uh, i don't know that you mentioned it but but you your patch of ground that you protected wasn't just endangered in and of itself but it connected to protected areas right that's right it actually lies so we um currently saved one piece shall we say and it's um it's south of a river the river is a border and across that river is a an incredible protected area it's called Pinda Private Reserve. It's home to elephants, rhinos, uh, black rhinos, critically endangered, and um, South Africa's most important breeding site for cheetah. So this is, as you said, it's not a piece of land kind of surrounded by development. It's a very important piece of land. And our hope for the future is essentially dropping fences to allow the wildlife to move in and out of that new habitat. And uh, we were also involved in another project to buy an additional piece of land which would connect to the same reserve but also 
connect to a World Heritage, a uh, UNESCO World Heritage site. So it's sort of the last chance. I feel that now is the time to protect land where possible and specifically to connect land together. And it's not a one-to-one, -one, it's like an exponential relationship where if you can connect those reserves together, you're, you're, you're expanding the carrying capacity of the wildlife across those two reserves. It's very important. There's some really amazing animals that you're working to protect uh, that we're all familiar with, right? Uh, the, the lions and the uh, rhinos and the elephants, but there are some others as well uh, that are lesser known species that are also endangered that you're helping to protect. Tell us a little bit about some of those. Sure, we have um, local scientists on the ground in South Africa and um, one is working with two unusual species that don't usually get steal all the attention. So one is a spotted hyena. You know, I think the hyena is always the bad guy in, you know, cartoons and stories. They have a bit of a bad rap, but they're actually a really fascinating animal. They're extremely intelligent. They're very much uh, a social animal. So he's studying them, um, putting collars on to be able to track them and see how they move because they move in and out of reserves or protected areas to understand. So in our region, their population is just the um, survival rate of the pups is very low and the mothers. So he wants to understand where they're coming into conflict with people. Is it farming? Is it hunters? Or, you know, they're getting snared. Bushmeat poaching is an issue sort of around Africa. So to really understand what is their challenge, why are they not surviving, and then, you know, come up with uh, solutions for them. The other, um, very, I love this, this telling the story because I'd never heard of it. It's a little antelope called a Sunni, S-U-N-I, and it's literally the size of a chihuahua. <laughs> and I think it's incredibly cute. Um, it lives in what's called a sand forest, which is very dense, so they get underneath. Um, and it's actually the sand forest habitat is South Africa's most endangered um, ecosystem. So we have that like type of habitat on our land and in the region, and, and this antelope actually lives in the sand forest. And we're super excited because earlier this year with a camera trap service, they're putting remote cameras out. We discovered it was unexpected actually that the Sunni antelope does live on the land that we saved. So that's pretty incredible. Um, yeah. And the camera trap surveys also found a lot of leopards, which is stunning. So a lot more leopards using the land than we expected. And we never see them, but only on the camera. <laughs> Wendy, what are you most proud of having accomplished so far? Uh, I think, you know, I, there's a lot of moments. I think saving the land was really transformative because it was, it was sort of much of a bigger project. Uh, support, we still support reserves and, and buy them supplies and equipment that they need. But saving land has such a long-term impact. It's kind of something that can't easily be undone and protecting habitat has this immediate impact and to see the biodiversity returning or to to actually reintroduce wildlife that haven't stepped foot there for you know 20 years um to to, to repair those ecosystems to me is is so exciting to see we're in the process of actually legally declaring um the land to be an uh, an official nature reserve under south african law so that will ensure that you know it's 
I, you know, protected, protected in perpetuity under the law. So that's, it just feels very tangible, you know, and it's something that can't easily be undone. So we're extremely proud of that and hope to continue. Well, fantastic. I'm sure you've learned a lot mm -hmm. since, you know, the tsunami and the earthquake. Uh, what's the most important lesson you've learned since then? I was very new to philanthropy. I, as, as you mentioned, came from Wall Street. And I think the, the most amazing thing is, is to learn how giving people are. And um, I think I'm, I'm genuinely passionate about this topic. And when people see that, I think they really respond to it and they want to help. So it's nice when you reach out and ask all kinds of people for help. You know, it's a company you want to have a gift at your auction for your gala. You know, so many people are very obliging and and so for me the lesson was not to be afraid to ask and i think being new in the philanthropy space it feels awkward at first you feel like you're asking someone to help you but it's not about me it's about the cause it's about elephants and rhinos and lions and little antelopes that don't have a voice to ask for help and i think there's so much help that they need that yeah i feel that was a lesson for me to learn personally that i can ask without feeling guilty or that it's I'm asking someone for money you kind of have to ask <laughs> to, to to have an impact yeah yeah as you think about um, your experience back in the earthquake and tsunami in Japan it, it would have been tempting especially after a couple of years to um, dismiss those feelings Mm. why do you think you stuck to your guns and made this radical life shift despite the obvious temptations not to the golden handcuffs you talked about right i think it was a feeling that had been growing even before the earthquake that if you're someone who's driven to make a difference or a purpose or mission driven i think it's sort of inside of you and i was fairly successful on Wall Street, but it didn't mean a lot to me personally. I worked in currency, so it was literally about money going back and forth, and that didn't have meaning to me. And so, and, and I think the more that you learn or the more that you open your eyes or that, that you learn about the fate of our planet, um, I think it's harder to look away. And I think those people who are very connected, and I think people connect maybe they have a dog they love or a cat they love and they connect to animals as an individual first and then expand that compassion to the wild world. Once you see, you know, I, I talk about a concept that, that is actually be, is a term now, which is ecological grief. And I think for those of us who feel it or start to see it, it's hard to turn away because that, that grief or that feeling of sadness or, or watching this destruction of our environment it's hard to just let it happen and not to act. So yeah, I, I think a lot about how to inspire others to, to act, <laughs> you know, and what is it that drives people to actually take action. And I, I definitely also believe that being able to go and see the wildlife, if you have that opportunity, or we have a volunteer trip, that people going and seeing it with their own eyes, if you can, is um, a, a real, makes a real impact is visceral 
even, you know, for a lot of kids and our ecologist who's dedicated his life to animals, it was seeing them at the zoo. So I really thought that if I don't change, then it will make me sick too, because I won't, cannot be happy. I, I personally could not be happy remaining on the track that I was on. So, yeah. So Wendy, what is your superpower? <laughs> it's a great question. I, I was in sales in the bank, so I really love people and I love connecting with people. I love talking to people. And so I think my superpower is genuinely loving connecting with people. And it's kind of helpful. Like I wanted to be a salesperson for nature, a salesperson for biodiversity that, you know, going out and talking and networking and, and telling people about our the challenges facing our planet, but also instead of it being a huge problem, how they can actually help in a, in a, in a bite-sized way, you know, it doesn't, so these problems sound so huge, but you can really break it down into manageable chunks and people can feel that they can make a difference. So I think that's my superpower is being a people person and loving connecting with people and then helping them to find a purpose too, like I did, um, and understanding how they can help fight back as well. Well, wonderful. Wendy, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. And I know you're busy, but before you go, if you would take just one minute and tell people how they can learn more about the Wild Tomorrow Fund and how they can connect with you personally, that would be great. Sure. Um, first stop is our website. It's www.wildtomorrowfund.org. It's easy to remember because Wild Tomorrow Fund abbreviates to WTF, which was sort of intentional. You know, when you talk about 100,000 elephants dying, uh, you can say WTF, it is quite shocking. So that's an easy way to remember who we are. Um, so we're on Facebook, Instagram, and if you'd like to connect with us, you can definitely email me, wendy at wildtomorrowfund.org. And yeah, I hope to connect with new people. Fantastic. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We wish you every success in preserving the uh, wild tomorrows for our posterity. Thank you so much, Devin. I appreciate it. All righty. Let's do some good. At Caring Crowd, we believe everyone has the power to make a difference. Through our crowdfunding platform for community health, we empower passionate people to drive real change. Whether you work for a nonprofit organization, volunteer, or want to get involved for the first time, you can post a campaign on Caring Crowd. Join us, because caring is where change begins. Thank you for listening. Devon Thorpe's mission is to end extreme poverty, improve global health, and mitigate climate change before 2045 by finding and sharing the stories of those who are doing the most good. You can join with other listeners to accelerate Devon's mission by visiting helpdevon.org right now.